Hey, welcome to Life 2.0 Podcast. I'm John St. Augustine. Glad to have you joining me from anywhere and everywhere around planet Earth. Time to go up the down staircase in the outdoor. Make sense out of the senseless. And if it's all possible, we'll try to find the obvious buried in the absurd. Let's go. Dirty Deeds Done Dirt Cheap, ACDC. I'm not just a country roads, middle of the road guy, believe it or not. Anyway, as I said, glad to have you joining me from all over planet Earth. Thanks so much, first and foremost, to the people who subscribe to this uh, podcast, the ongoing exploration of the human condition, which sometimes leaves me a little bit uh, high and dry, but we mush on. A little bit different show today. I like to think that for the most part, the podcasts that I uh, produce every week and put out to the world have some sort of value in the way that it might have you thinking about or considering your life in a different perspective. You know, the concept of being alive to me is still just the most amazing thing, especially when you lose somebody close to you, which I have in the last couple of weeks. And uh, it just kind of brings it all back that, you know, you're still here, that I'm still get a chance to play in the game. And for all the gnashing of teeth and the beating of brows and the wringing of hands that goes on with all the difficulties in the world, underneath all that to me, it's still pretty amazing, uh, the gift of life, to just be alive at all, even with all the ups and downs. So a lot of times I talk about things that I hope can give you the opportunity to look at your life a little bit differently. Some of the situations I've been in, use those as opportunities to change the game as it were. And, and when you, you know, as my old buddy Wayne Dyer used to say, and he had a lot of great sayings, but one of my favorites was when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. And that is so true. It seems like it's a simple thing and it is sometimes not easy, but that's how it works. And this show today is a little bit of a deviation from a lot of the heavy duty stuff that I, I, I make a run at each week, Be, but it's also a piece of magic. And, and, and I'll tell you why. I have been so blessed and so fortunate to meet some of the people that I've met in my lifetime that I, I, I often pinch myself. How did this happen? And as I'm sitting here in my studio this morning, surrounded by all kind of stuff that I have here, you know, I've often said that sometimes I think I've recreated my bedroom as a kid growing up because that's where I was very comfortable. And it was my little castle. And, uh, and to some degree, not 100%, but I've surrounded myself with stuff in here that reminds me of good things in my life and good times and, and good memories. And over on my Grundig stereo, that was my mom and dad's wedding gift to each other before I was born. I have it here in my studio. On top of that, I have a pictures of my family and friends who've gone before me. Uh, everything from my mom and dad to my uh, grandpa Carl and grandpa John to the road warrior figurines of Mike Hegstrand and Joe Laurinaitis, a couple buddies of mine. And, and all around, there's stuff in here. And in preparation for this show, that was like the overriding thought. The people I've had a chance to work with, spend time with, hang out with, become friends with, all, all that stuff, when I really pull back and look at it, it's incredible to me. The connected dots are incredible because my recollection is that I never sat down once and put on paper, I'd like to work with the road warriors. 
I don't know if anybody would ever write that down to begin with. A couple of rough characters, but our lives intersected. I always appreciated what they did in and out of the ring back in the 1980s. And for whatever reason, however these cosmic tumblers fall, our paths crossed. We spent a few years together, had a great time. And when Mike died, and I think it was 03, that was a pretty rough one. And then Joe just died, I think, in 2020. And uh, so uh, when they're gone, you, at least for me, I get to take stock of that time and see it a little bit different, as Wayne Dyer pointed out, see it a little bit different, and then it changes. I'll be the first to admit that most of what I do, I'm not qualified for on paper. Sitting behind this microphone, never went to broadcasting school or took a journalism class or anything like that. Somehow the universal tumbers fell in my direction, allowed me to get behind a microphone back in 1997. I've been doing this ever since. I was 37 when I started. So, so that stuff fascinates me. Over on the wall here to my left is a big picture of my friend Jerry Kramer, who played for the Green Bay Packers in the first two Super Bowls, played for Lombardi for 10 years. And when I was a kid, I read his book, the Instant Replay book with he and uh, Dick Shap that came out in 1967. I would have read it in 68 when I was 10 on a drive from Appleton, Wisconsin to Chicago. My dad had bought a Persona electric razor or no Persona electric coated blade. Let me get that correct because there's a difference. And he was going to throw the book out because he was a huge Bears fan, couldn't stand the Packers. He threw the book in the garbage can at the little Dreamland Motel. And I fished it out and secretly read it at the back of my dad's Impala on the way back home from vacation. And I have that same copy here. And how Jerry Kramer and I became friends decades later is just another one of those wow things for me. We talk once or twice a month. We've done events together. I just... Uh, just a gift. And then over on the wall here, my buddy, John Denver, you know, he was, his, his voice was in my ear as a, as a young man growing up. It made an indelible mark on me. And, uh, for him to invite me to speak at the Windstar Choices for the Future Symposium in 1993, that's beyond my comprehension. I'm still in touch with Annie Denver and, and, um, I've done a lot of shows and tributes and things for John and, and things continue along that path. So it, when I pull back and look, and most of this stuff, quite honestly, happens when I'm cutting the grass. When I'm doing something else, you know, something physical, when I'm in the gym, my mind takes off and it thinks of these things. And so just yesterday, I was thinking about all that, how fortunate I am. And those are just the people you might know their names. There's so many more. Oprah Winfrey, are you kidding me? I mean, I first met Oprah in 1986 when I was on board a cruise ship. And the only reason I was on board a cruise ship I had gotten married about uh, four months earlier, and the original, we, we were in a very bad car accident three weeks or so after we got married, and because of that, I couldn't go, we couldn't go on our first honeymoon, so the second honeymoon was this cruise ship, and Oprah's on there, and I already knew who she was. She was not a big deal yet. She wasn't Oprah yet. She was just Oprah Winfrey, who was doing a morning show in Chicago on, w, on uh, WLS, Channel 7, and I knew her because I lived in Chicago. And the fact that we were on that cruise ship together and connected there, that years later, I would be creating the Oprah Network for Sirius XM Radio, which didn't even exist back then. I mean, it's just beyond comprehending for me, for the most part. And that's the good thing. I could not have designed any of this on my own. I'll leave that up to you to figure out how that may come around or not. I just think there's a serious amount of providence sometimes when you get out of the way. 
And what this show is about today is another one of those moments that is just so sacred to me on some level. Just this side of sacred, I guess you could say. But maybe crossing the line because it, it, it's such a good feeling that I get. Over to my right, there's a, uh, a baseball mitt with a ball in it, autographed by most of the 1969 Chicago Cubs team, as well as a guy named Andy Pafko who played in the 50s for the Cubs. And the ball is sitting in a mitt that is signed by Randy Hunley, who was the catcher for those great Cub teams of the 60s. And um, I've had this mitt for a very, very long time. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, and you can read about this in my second book, Every Moment Matters, there's a chapter called The Corner. Uh, when I was a kid, all the Cubs would stop at this corner, Berto and Keeler, after the games at Wrigley Field and drive out to the northwest suburbs. Now, this was from Wrigley Field to where they were at was probably four or five miles. And all the way down that four and five miles of Berto Avenue, there were stops. And there were kids, I'm sure, all the way. I don't know if anybody sits out there anymore. Maybe these guys fly out in their houses in helicopters at this point because of the money they make. But we waited there. Come hell or high water, come rain or shine. And we got autographs from Glenn Beckert, Ron Sano, and, and Ernie. I even have a, somewhere, I have an autograph of Bruce Freming, who was an umpire, who called like Milt Pappas's, he's the guy that wouldn't give Milt Pappas the no-hitter, as I recall, something like that. Anyway, it was just a high time to go out there and be with your friends and we stand under this giant tree and get autographs. And one day in 1970, after the Cubs had succumbed to the New York Mets in 1969, I was the only kid out there because it was a rainout against the Expos. And a few of the guys stopped and kind of looked at me like, what the hell are you doing out in the rain here, kid? And they kind of kept going, didn't stop real fast, just gone, you know. But this red Corvette pulls up. It says Cub 9 on the license plate, and I know who that is. It's Randy Hunley. And at that time, I had never seen a window of a car go down electrically. We all had crank windows, if you remember, back in 1969 or 70. But he had a Corvette. And that Corvette didn't have a crank. It had a button, the window down. It was so cool. It was a big deal back then. I'm standing there, knees knocking, teeth chattering, rain. He says, what are you doing out here, boy? And I'm like, well, I want an autograph, sir. And he says, get in here for a second. So I go around and get in his car. I sit on the side, you know, the passenger seat. And, he, you know, you're going to catch your death the cold here, kid. Now, signs the baseball I had at the time. Now get on home. How far do you live? Just a couple blocks. Well, get on home and get warmed up and have dinner. Years later, my first paid writing assignment was for Chicago Sports Magazine, which is now long gone. And uh, it was to cover the Randy Hunley fantasy camps. I don't remember how all the pieces came together to make that happen. I mean, I may have pitched. Now, this is 92, 93 when this was starting to happen for me. I don't think we had email. I don't think I had a computer. I'm not sure how that happened. Maybe I called them. And, and Randy Hunley, had, after he retired, he created the fantasy camp experience where you go to the Cubs at that time and you get a uniform and the whole thing and you play baseball with your heroes. I mean, it's just an incredible concept. And um, so I wanted to cover it for the magazine. And I got the okay to do it. And 250 bucks. You're going to pay me $250 to put a Cubs uniform on and go hang out with Hunley and Sano and Kessinger and Beckert and Billy Williams and, and Rich Nye and, oh, come on, Larry Bittner, let's go. So I did. It was a three-day camp. Two days were at UIC Field 
in Chicago and we practiced there. And my coach was the late, great Gene Oliver, the only guy ever traded, I believe, for Bob Euchre. And um, I had a hell of a time. I, you know, I just, I hit a grand slam on the second day and just, just, <laughs> just, it's a fantasy. Third day we went to Wrigley Field. My dad was in the, in the stands with my son, Andy. And uh, to go out on that field, the field of dreams for us here in Chicago, the friendly confines was just nearly beyond comprehension. We played a seven-inning game. I got to catch three innings behind the plate where Gabby Hartnett had been and Johnny Bench and Manny Sanguin and, of course, Hunley. And because I'd hit a grand slam the day before, they weren't going to pitch to me, take any chances of me cranking one out. So at one point, Larry Bittner had been pitching for the pros. We were the Joes. They were the pros. And, um, when I got up, it was kind of, kind of cool to know that they weren't going to pitch to me. So they bring Rich Nye in, who was a veterinarian now. And I think he was then this was in 93. Uh, and I had never seen a major league curveball before <laughs> and I didn't hardly see it that day. So fouled off a few and hit a deep fly to center. And that was my day. It was such a, an amazing experience. And then to write about it, to capture that in words, for the first time in my career as a pseudo-journalist, quasi-journalist, broadcaster, big thrill for me. So I stayed in touch with Randy over the years since 1993 when I was producing at Harpo, you know, um, to bring him in to talk to Dr. Oz, whose show I produced about baseball and injuries and athletics was a great thing. And I had Ron Santo come in and I was telling Hunley this not long ago. Uh, after Ron Sano came in and I had him on the Dr. Oz show, uh, I didn't have to buy Cubs tickets for like three years. <laughs> it's just really amazing. Ron Sano was so great. Whenever you need a ticket, you call me. I'll never forget being down there and taking my son into the booth with him and Pat Hughes while they were calling a game back in the day, sitting in the dugout with Andy. It was great, great stuff. So anyway, this past week I had an opportunity to sit down with Randy Hundley. Uh, we are in the early stages early stages of a book project. I think what he has to say is a singular view from behind the plate for all those years he spent 14 seasons in Major League Baseball. And um, he's a colorful character. There's no doubt about that. And I just thought, you know, a little bit of a deviation from what I normally talk about. And while it's about baseball, for sure, he also was a guy that grew up just loving the game. And, you know, then when you have a deep love for something or connection to something, oftentimes, I'm prime example, you know, uh, the, the universe sees somehow to mesh that up with where you need to go to fulfill that. And so Hunley grew up as a kid in Martinsville, Virginia, loved baseball since he was two years old, and ends up being a gold glove and an all-star catcher for the Chicago Cubs. Not a bad deal. So I've already taken up too much time on that. Uh, here's a bit of an excerpt from my conversation with Randy this past week. Earliest memories, earliest thoughts of getting into the game, heroes you had growing up, how did it happen? The earliest I can remember is being two years old and uh, wanting to be a baseball player. I don't know how or why. My dad was a semi-pro player <coughs> and um, but I, you know, I really didn't um, know much about the game. I just wanted to be a baseball player. And I can remember 
being about six years old and uh, lived pretty close to a playing field and uh, they put me in left field and I get this high flying fly ball to me in left field and I catch it. I catch the ball on my chest and I hold the ball against my chest once it hits and I was so proud of that that it, it, I, I mean, I can't explain to you right now what that felt like playing with, you know, 13 to 15 year old kids and I'm a six year old playing left field. They just put me out there because there's no other place to play me. And I catch this fly ball and I was so proud. Um, every day I wanted to be on the ball field. I didn't care what I was doing, uh, letting me get on that ball field and play catch with somebody. And um, I, I'll just always remember that as, as a kid. And I'm 80 years old and that, that I remember that being about six years old at that time, catching that fly ball. I know when you just, you don't know you did this, but when you talked about catching the ball, you got, you lit up at 80. You're lucky you were I, there again. I, I'm telling you, it was as, as if I was there right now trying to catch that fly ball. And, I mean, it to me, it was a very high fly ball and... Uh, also to me for a six-year-old kid to catch that mm -hmm. ball uh, I thought was amazing to my own self and uh, everybody was proud of the fact that I was able to catch that ball did you ever get to see your dad play ball yeah I was able to see my dad uh, play quite a bit uh, semi-pro ball uh, when I was young we were living in Baltimore, Maryland, and he was uh, working for, uh, I think it was Martin um, Fabricators that would work on planes mm. during the war. And, um, and then we moved back to Virginia uh, I was a baby at the time when we were in Baltimore, but I have seen pictures when my dad was playing against uh, guys like um, Stan Musial, for one, and uh, he, my dad was always a Stan Musial St. Louis Cardinal fan, and I think it was because of that time that he played against Stan Musial. Was he a catcher, your dad? My dad was a catcher. He um, he caught two-handed. Which was the norm back then. It was the norm. And uh, he broke his bare hand. One time he got a foul ball on his hand and it broke his hand in 26 places. <laughs> and um, so later on, when I was about eight years old, uh, I played shortstop in Little League, and I pitched. I loved pitching, 
because I had a good curveball at, uh. at eight years old. <laughs> but my dad knew better and did not want me to pitch and ruin my arm. So he's laying on the sofa one day watching uh, watching Major League Baseball on a Saturday afternoon. I walked into the family room and uh, I sat down and I said, Dad, I don't like playing shortstop. You don't want me to pitch. I said, where else is there for me to play? He doesn't say a word. He gets up off the sofa and he says, come with me. We go to the front door. He stops, put his sh puts his shoes on. We go out in the yard, or before we go out in the yard, and as he opens the door, he stops me and puts his big finger right between my eyes and says, I'm going to go out here and teach you to be a catcher, and you're going to be a one-handed catcher. If I ever see you put that bare hand up to catch the ball, I'm coming and get you. <laughs> and uh, and he meant it. I, he meant it. <laughs> yes, he meant it very, very emphatically that I was to be a one-handed catcher. And nobody was a one-handed catcher at that time. And um, so with that, uh, we went out in the yard, and he showed me how to be a catcher. And the next day I go to school, after school, I'm, I'm walking home and I stop at a department store and I find this catcher's mitt that had a hinge in it. And uh, I, it fit my hand perfectly. And I would hide that mitt before I'd leave there. And uh, <laughs> finally one day the, the sporting's... Uh, department manager called my dad and said you have got to buy this mitt randy has been by here every day and uh you gotta buy it and at that time that mitt was well over a hundred dollars wow and he he sold that mitt to my dad and gave my dad a break on it and I used that mitt through Little League, Pony League, high school ball, and uh, it was one of my favorite uh, gloves of all time. And uh, I was so proud of that mitt. Still have it? No, but I think I think a cousin has it, and uh, I haven't really asked for it because uh, I think that they've taken pride in having it. Mm. So when your dad he went out and did the catching thing and taught you how to catch, uh, over the years would he come and go to your games and kind of be a coach for you while you were playing or did he just kind of let you do your thing? No, he, would, he <clears throat> came to every game I played, I think. And... Uh, I knew my dad was a good player because I would follow the, him on the weekends when he'd play semi-pro ball out in the country. And uh, it was a left-handed hitter. Mm. It was only weighed about 155 pounds, but used a big bat and could hit the ball a long way. And uh, he, he was a, a catcher. 
but he stayed injured most of his life because he he was a two-handed catcher yeah. and uh, that's why he told me you can catch but if I ever see you put that bare hand up to catch the ball I'm coming to get you and I played games in the big leagues worrying about my dad seeing me <laughs> put my hand too close to that mitt yeah. to catch the ball because you'd hear about it oh I, I i was afraid he'd come through the tv and get me <laughs> it's probably safe to say your dad was obviously a big influence on you but in in a lot of different ways not just as your father but someone you looked up to he's a semi-pro ball player when you're a little kid, he was probably larger than life and all the things you learned from him. Well, he, he was. Um, when I was eight years old, I'd go to work with him on Saturdays, and uh, I always enjoyed doing that. It was tough to get up early in the morning and go to work. But we, uh, my dad built uh Martinsville Speedway in hmm. Martinsville, Virginia was like a half mile dirt track and my dad had heavy equipment and uh, had a motor grader and he, he would smooth the racetrack out for them and one day I'm sitting in the tractor trailer I get it, I get it started because after watching him start the tractor trailer I learned how to do that, and I get it going, and I, I get out on the racetrack, and he is sloping a bank in a curve, and he sees the tractor trailer running around the track. He jumps off the motor grader, and it's still mm. grading the <laughs> bank, and jumps up on it. He said, John Brown, I didn't know you were driving this thing. <laughs> And he says, you take it back over there and park it. And uh, <laughs> that was a fond memory for me. How old were you when that happened? I was eight years old. Eight years old. He couldn't even see you in no, there. No, he couldn't see and my you're driving. <laughs> and, but I'm driving the 18-wheel. Oh, my looking gosh. between the steering wheel. And, and uh, it was a big thrill for me. Hmm. As you went along, and, you're, and we'll come back to a lot of this stuff over and over again, but as you think about your baseball career, I don't exactly remember the story of your first contract or something about all that with your dad. He advised you where there was something going on with all, how, how you got into the big leagues. I can't remember. Something around all that? Well, um, when I graduated from high school, I signed with the San Francisco Giants for $110,000. Uh, in 1960, which was a good chunk of change. Mm -hmm. How long was that contract? A year? A couple of years well, to get out of it? Uh, it was basically a five-year contract. That that's if, mm -hmm. if you got a bonus like that, you, yeah, you'd play for five years. And um, but my my dad was very instrumental to me. I had better offers from other ball clubs, but uh, Tim Tim Murchison was a scout that signed me with the Giants, and uh, he was the first scout to come and see me. 
I'm sitting in sociology one day, and we've got about 15, 15 minutes to go until the class is over with. Knock comes on the door, and the secretary says, there's somebody here to see Randy Hunley. I thought, wonderful. I get out of this dumb class. <laughs> Kids are throwing pennies against the school, <laughs> against the board. Yeah. And just, and I'm sitting sideways looking out the window, dreaming of being a ball player. Mm. And there's somebody here to see Randy. Well, I thank goodness I get out of this dumb class. I go down and I see this guy standing there, but I don't recognize him in any way. And as I approach him, he said, Randy, my name is Tim Murchison, and I'm a scout with the San Francisco Giants. Now, I'm a junior in high school at that point, and um, it was it was pretty, I don't know, November or something like that in, in, in the year, and um, I had played football, and I, I was, uh, <clears throat> you know, always daydreaming about being a baseball player. And uh, he hands me a, his calling card, and the Giants had just moved to San Francisco a couple of years before this, and a big, big sign across the card said, Giants, Tim Murchison, Scout. And I was absolutely one of the biggest thrills I ever had in my life. And uh, he gave me a catcher's mitt, and a bat, and um, so he followed me my junior year in high school and my senior year, and uh, that's all I ever dreamed of doing in my life was being a baseball player. So when I got the offers from other teams, I turned them down because I wanted to be loyal to the first scout that saw me play. And I want to tell you, many times I got hit right between the <laughs> eyes with, with balls hitting me, and, um, uh, but that was a thrill for me. There's been a lot of things you're known for in your career. Your temper is one of them behind the plate when you think things aren't going the way they should or the umpires you know, need glasses. Were you like that in high school too? Did this start early with you or something that developed over time? Once you're behind the plate, you kind of being the captain back there. What was that like? Was that part of where this comes from? Yeah, it was probably part of my dad. He was. And you don't deny there, there was a time where you get a little fired up. Oh, I, I don't deny that one <laughs> iota. Um, but, you know, you play for Leo DeRocher, you had better be fired up or else you're not going to be playing much. And um, I tried to get every pitch I possibly could from umpires. And if I thought they missed it, I'd let them know that they missed the pitch. Um, I recall one night in Montreal, the dugouts were very close to home plate. And a pitch had four or five inches of the inside part of the uh, plate and about waist high. 
Al Barlick was the umpire, and he called to the ball. And Leo just, you know, 20, 25 feet from me, said, Randy, was that a strike? I said, yes, it was. Al Barlick, the next night, goes to umpire third base. In first inning, he calls Sano, Ron Sano over, and he says, I don't know what he said to him, but Randy Hunley doesn't know what he's talking about or something to that effect. I said, oh, really? The next night he goes to second base and he tells Kessinger the first inning and then Beckert the second inning. The third night, I wait for him down the right field line. I said, listen, my teammates have come and told me that you have been bad-mouthing me because you missed that pitch last night. And I said, I'm going to tell you right now, if I hear it again, I'm going to go to the commissioner of baseball and tell what you, how you're treating me. And uh, I, I never heard anything from him after that. <laughs> but uh, I, I was feisty and a fighter trying to get anything I could for my pitchers or my team. You said a lot of that comes from your pop? That comes from my dad. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he, he uh, was tough in business. He had a grading and operating uh, company, and, and uh, he was tough. He, and he only weighed 155 pounds, and he'd carry a stick with him if he had to to, <laughs> to fight off the bigger men. Mm -hmm. But uh, he would fight you to drop of a hat. So if I get my numbers right, you come from the Giants in 66 to the Cubs with Bill Hans as part of a trade, right? Correct. How'd that go? Well, it uh, it went fine as far as I was concerned. I, I was... Uh, I wanted. I had asked the Giants to trade me, play me, or release me. I didn't care what they did, but one or the other. And um, and I left 65 uh, September of 65. I left San Francisco and driving back to Virginia. And I, that was the last word I had with the general manager of the ball club who happened to be Chubb Feeney. And um, so that winter, they trade me uh, to the Cubs with Bill Hands for Hobie Landreth and Don Landrum. And, um, and, you know, when I got to the Cubs, I was excited as all get out. We went to Escondido, California that first year and uh, I'll never forget, I became real good friends with Kenny Holtzman. He was j reporting there, and we were together, and we'd go to eat, we'd go eat together, and just hung out, and just became great friends. And uh, and and then, you know, he played with us with the Cubs for several years, and then he started wanting to be traded from there to some some other team. Mm -hmm. But um, it was it was interesting to me uh, 
because um, Leo called a clubhouse meeting. Oh, I'd say maybe three or four days into spring training. Your first year? My first year. <clears throat> and um, he, let's see, the, the first person he gets on was Charlie Grimm. And he says, Charlie, I don't ever want to see you in our, in our locker room ever again. Now, Charlie Grimm was a tremendous ball player, and Cubs fans loved him all over the country and was a great guy. But Leo was just showing his authority at that particular time, and I know that it hurt Charlie because we didn't see much of him after that. The next person he gets on is Josh Kawano, our clubhouse guy. <laughs> and he, he said to Josh, look, you little Jap, you do what I tell you to do, and I don't want to hear anything else out of you. And I thought, holy cow. <laughs> And then he gets on Ernie Banks. He said, Ernie, when a pitcher throws over to first base, I want you to tag that runner. I don't care if he's been standing there for five minutes. You tag the runner. And I'm thinking, holy cow, how can he get on all of these top-notch people with the organization and, and not – feel bad about it. Uh, it was something that was difficult for me to understand. And, um, and I went out to catch in the bullpen, and all of a sudden this bullpen becomes extremely narrow. And to have two pitchers thrown in this bullpen, it was almost one would have to throw and the other one wait while he threw, and then then he would throw. And uh, I got to the point that I could not throw the ball back to the pitcher. And what an uncomfortable feeling that was. And um, I I kept forcing in in my arm just when wouldn't be relaxed throwing it back and it, it was a terrible terrible feeling and shortly thereafter we start playing exhibition games and i couldn't get it back to the pitcher uh i couldn't I, i'd get it back but i you know i wasn't i looked terrible doing it but um it became a real problem for me and uh I finally read an article about a, a player that had somewhat the same problem, but he read the book Psycho-Cybernetics. Mm. And so I go and get the book Psycho-Cybernetics, and I just I learn how to relax, and you know, and then it came back to me to be able to throw the ball back to the pitcher. But I tell you, that was a real struggle for me. For a while, did DeRocher take notice of that? Let you know about it? Yeah, yeah, he took notice of it. Um, I remember 
the season starting and we are playing in um, in Houston against the Astros and I'd go out in the outfield and I'd throw with pitchers and anybody would throw with me to get that feeling down and uh, he said I want you to fire that ball back to the pitcher and I'm thinking holy cow I don't know if I can fire that ball I might throw it over the head <laughs> or bounce it on the ground or whatever and I remember Bill Hands was a pitcher and uh, he'd throw that ball and then he would stand like get all squared up like I'm waiting for a line drive to come <laughs> back at me and I'd fire that ball at him and it was the most uncomfortable thing that I have ever done in my life. And uh, But somehow or another I got through it. I finally read an article about, you know, this type of stuff and, and it was just all in, in your mind and you had to get it out. What do you think DeRocher's point was or what he, what he was trying to do I know he's showing his authority, but I mean, even little things like not just tossing the ball back to the pitcher, snapping it back, and being on the clubhouse manager, for God's sakes. What was his goal? I think just to show everybody who was the boss of the operations, and I don't care who you were, what you did, I'm the boss. And you're going to listen to what I t say to you, and I think that that put some pressure on our on our ball players at that time. And um, I know that it put pressure on me. I, it, it just I just felt if you can get on those people, holy cow, you you'll be getting on my fanny like crazy. <laughs> and uh, it was not fun. Mm. Was was there an opposite side of him? This almost sounds a little bit like Vince Lombardi, yelling and yelling and yelling and then saying, but you know what, someday you're going to be great. Was there any of the opposite? Any no. praise at all? No, just one way, huh? Just, just slam, bam, yeah. you deal with it. Um, and I'm telling you, it was a nightmare. I thought about it 24-7 during the time I couldn't get rid of the feeling of throwing the ball back to the pitcher and uh, somehow I just snapped out of it and then it became a natural mm -hmm. thing again. You talked about uh, Kenny Holtzman being in that early years and then you can start to see the team start to come together Ernie was there Ron Sano and Billy Williams and these other guys and you can see the pieces coming together by 1969 of course everybody knew that this was kind of going to be the thing. Uh, we're jumping ahead a little bit, but I want to get this in today. So was there any idea coming out of 67 and 68 that you guys would win the first 11 out of 12 and 69 and hold first place? Did you as a team feel you were that good? No, I don't think so. Hmm. I, <clears throat> we had 66 was bad, 7, 8. Three years were bad, and uh, I, I think we, as players, we felt that we had a pretty good team. Uh, but Willie, I get a base hit in the ninth inning with two outs, and Leo pinch hits Willie Smith. Um, 
and he hits a two-run homer. I'm on first base, and I see this ball go over my head, and I'm thinking, this is not going to get high enough to get out of here, so I got to haul Fanny to get to home plate for the tying run. And thank goodness the ball went out of the ballpark, and we won that game, and we were, I mean, we were just absolutely, absolutely ecstatic that this happened for our ball club. And it just seemed to set the tune for our team for the rest of the season. There was, as surprised as the team was, the city of Chicago, I think, was even more surprised because the fans have gone through these years that weren't very good and all the ups and downs. And it caught like wildfire yes, when you did. guys started winning. All of a sudden, you're the hometown heroes. You're not the goats anymore. You're the heroes. And how was that for you? So now you're, by that time, you're nine years in the league, basically. Um, you had matured as a young man, and you matured as a ball player, and obviously matured as a catcher. But that's a whole nother level of pressure that a whole city puts on a team to win. What, what was that like for all of you, well, you especially? Behind the plate, calling the plays. Well, <clears throat> It was wonderful for me. I mean, by that time, after the first year that Leo was on my fanny all the time, he came, he calls me over in spring training. He said, listen, you're my leader on the ball club, and I'm going to take care of you, and if anybody gives you a hard time, you let me know. I'll take care of them. And I said, okay, Skip. And, and that meant a lot to me and made me play better for him because I thought he hated me the way he was <laughs> on me the, my first year. The, the, the ups and downs for the team to, to go to such great heights and then crash at the end like that. And as I said, you got the entire city of Chicago on your back expecting the, all those type of things. It's amazing to me maybe in hindsight because of the time that it was in, that this team, the Chicago Cubs 69 team, until the 2016 team came along and actually won the World Series, even though they had league championships, was still the most popular Cubs team. And I would say still right up there, even though you lost. How do you, what do you attribute that kind of popularity to, to a team that lost? Well, I think we had uh, some interesting characters on the ball club. Jim Hickman contributed an awful lot to the Cubs organization that year. Uh, Sano was very prevalent. Uh, Beck, we, we, we didn't know that Beck was as good as he was. Uh, Don Kessinger playing shortstop. Billy Williams, you can't say enough for Billy Williams the way he played and hit home runs for us and drove in runs. Uh, Fergie pitching and oh, I don't was Holtzman wasn't with us in 69, was he? I think he was. I'll ch we can check. Um, but, you know, we all those guys contributed an awful lot and played every day. And uh, I just think, as I see baseball being played today, and even at that time, the Mets played a different lineup every day. 
and would rest guys and depending on who was pitching left or right would rest guys left or right and um, but we did I didn't know anything different than going out and playing every day mm -hmm. and giving it the best effort that I possibly could. And um, it, it just didn't work out for us and was a terrible feeling and to let the fans down because they were so important to us the whole season was very frustrating. There's a in my opinion, and I want to get your take on this, back in those days, there seemed to be a much less of a gap between the fans and the players. I don't know if that's the way the field was set up or because we saw you guys on TV every day or, you know, it, there was, it seemed, well, there wasn't these huge salaries. There wasn't a lot of what's going on in, in baseball today and sports today. And it seemed like you were closer to us than the players are now. I think money has had a lot to do with it. Do you think that while it was good that you know that, that baseball has progressed and the salaries have changed, do you see a difference from the time you played to how it is now in regards to all that? Yeah, definitely so. Um, we wanted to be close to the fans, and uh, we wanted to sign autographs for them and whatnot. Uh, it was difficult at times, but we still wanted to do it, and and fans, you know, sometimes would get upset with us because we didn't, because we got to take batting practice and you do your job. You got to do, <laughs> got to do a job exactly. And uh, but uh, it was a time that I just enjoyed playing. We expected to win a ball game every time we went on the field, and when we didn't, it was a disappointment. And, um, but, you know, I'm also realistic enough to know that we had to give the Mets credit for the way they played and uh, won the pennant that year and were world champions. That's good stuff. I so enjoy sitting down talking with him and spending time with him. And it's just, it is still hard for me to wrap around my head. That voice you hear, that distinctive Virginia drawl that he has, that's the same thing I heard in the car back in 1970 in that Corvette. Matter of fact, when I left that Corvette, still sitting in his driveway. Amazing stuff. So if nothing else, it may not be that you're the biggest baseball fan in the world, and that's okay, but you got to appreciate the guy's journey from where he was to where he's at now. The creation of those camps really came out of almost nowhere. We didn't get into that a whole lot uh, in the conversation, but uh, it is that concept has enhanced the lives of so many people, myself included, that the line between being the fan sitting in the stands watching and being on the field, you know, um, is a, is a really great thing. Not to mention the fact that when you sit and watch a baseball game and somebody strikes out, you're like, "Oh, you suck!" No, they don't. You could do any better. I'm here to tell you. I had a pretty good athlete back in my day. I couldn't hit the hanging curve if you paid me. It was that difficult. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, looking for some interesting things in the near future with Randy when this book uh, kind of takes form. Uh, I'll uh, definitely be talking about it here. Until next time, be well, safe travels. I appreciate that you're listening. 
Adios.